Well, Jesus spoke many parables, as I'm sure you are aware. Uh, sometimes he did it very publicly, and it was done in a way in which it kind of veiled the truths of the kingdom from some, but those who had ears to hear had understanding. And in this parable, we see it's really given to Jesus' disciples. But Jesus didn't just speak parables randomly at different times just because he thought it was a good way to speak. Instead, parables always take place in context. Now, when I was in seminary, I remember going to all of my Old Testament classes, and the professor there, every time we came to class, we had a mantra. Start with the Bible, not with the commentary. He would say, start with the Bible. We would say, not with the commentary. And then he would say, context, and we would reply, is king. Context is king. If we want to understand this parable, we must look at the broader context in which Jesus is telling this parable. So we're going to go back to chapter 19 for a moment. And we're going to look at the context in which Jesus tells this parable. It's a story you might be well acquainted with. It is the story of the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and he asks them, how can I have eternal life? Of course, you know the dialogue they had with one another. Beginning in verse 17, Jesus says, Why do you call me good? There is none good that, uh, that is. God, but if thou wilt enter into life, keep the commandments. And he said unto them, Which? Jesus says, Thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness. Honor thy father and mother, and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. The young man saith unto him, All these things I have kept from my youth up. What lack I yet? And Jesus said unto him, If thou wilt be perfect, go and sell all that thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. And when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had many great possessions. And said Jesus unto his disciples, Verily I say unto you that a rich man shall hardly enter into the kingdom of heaven. And again I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And when the disciples heard it, they were exceedingly amazed, saying, Who then can be saved? Jesus beheld them and said unto them, With men this is impossible, with God all things are possible. And here's the most important part as we come to the context in which Jesus gives this parable. Then answered Peter and said unto him, Behold, we have forsaken all and followed thee. What shall we have therefore? And Jesus said unto them, Verily I say unto you, That ye which have followed me, in this regeneration, when the Son of Man shall sit on the throne of his glory, Ye also shall sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And every one that hath forsaken houses, or brethren, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, shall receive a hundredfold, and shall inherit eternal life. But many that are first shall be last, and the last first. Peter sees this scene play out. He sees this man who is so prominent, who seems to be the blessed man, right? The man who has received the blessing of the Lord, has all of the prominence and wealth among the people of Israel, and yet he is turned away from Jesus. And Peter begins to doubt whether he will get paid, whether he will be rewarded, whether the sacrifices he has made 
are worth it? This is the question he asks to Jesus. He says, what about me? I've forsaken everything. I've given up everything. Just like you told him to do, I've done it. What will I receive? Now, Jesus does give him assurance that he will receive, indeed, many blessings. A hundredfold of anything he has given up. A place of prominence in the new heavens and new earth, seated on a throne, an unthinkable place of honor. And if that's not enough, of course, eternal life. Jesus is, in some ways, going to be rebuking Peter, instructing Peter here with this parable about what the kingdom is truly like. See, the parables almost always begin with this saying, the kingdom of heaven is like, the kingdom of God is like. It's instructive for what the kingdom is like in contrast to what our kingdom in this world is like. It, it rubs against our expectations. There's often a time throughout the parables where it seems normal and then all of a sudden it takes a turn. There's an unexpected ending. This is what's going to happen in our passage today. Now as we look at a parable... Uh, we often have several characters, and these characters represent different people within the kingdom. Now, if we look at our passage, we have the first and the last at the end. And if you notice at the end of the passage in chapter 19, we have the first and the last. So Jesus has bookmarked these together. That's how we can understand that they're connected, how Jesus is continuing on this thought. So we have the, the first laborers, the last laborers, and of course, the most central character to our parable is the master of the house, the one who owns the vineyard. This is, of course, the character who represents the true king, God himself, and his kingdom. Now, there's a bit of cultural difference in our day from what was happening at this time. We don't necessarily have day laborers as they did back in the first century. Now, before coming here, uh, I was told, uh, you know, I came from Fargo, North Dakota, and I don't know what you know about Fargo, but it's kind of a little city that's surrounded by farms. And when I first came up to visit, I was asked to preach in a church nearby. Uh, they lived out in rural North Dakota, and we went out to lunch at somebody's house afterwards, and there was all of these people from out of town. I couldn't understand why everybody's brother and friend and sister-in-law's brother came into town. But what I quickly learned is that sugar beet season is a busy time in North Dakota, and everybody needed to drive these big trucks. So, in order to accomplish the task, they would hire anybody that was willing to come and drive these trucks through the rural streets of North Dakota to bring the sugar beets to the sugar factory. Now, that doesn't quite get us to the category of a day laborer. But these were people that were brought in. You know, there, there was no ongoing relationship for these men who were driving trucks in North Dakota. But even more so, in this time, the day laborer was a man who had no guarantee of any sort of work any day of the week. He was at the mercy of landowners to come and to hire them to work for the day. If they weren't hired, they no doubt would have gone home disappointed, unable to provide for themselves or their family, perhaps going hungry. These were the most vulnerable people at the time. 
They didn't have any prominence or wealth. No guarantee for work. Even if they were hired on Monday, there's no guarantee they would have been hired again on Tuesday. The day laborer was a vulnerable and needy person at the mercy of the system around them. There was no unemployment checks or food stamps for them to cash in where they weren't hired. And so this scene takes place, and it would have been a normal scene. There's nothing novel happening. It's just not normal for us to think about. Perhaps maybe hiring temps from a temp agency is the closest we get in our modern world. But the scene begins, there are really two scenes for us in this parable. We have this master of the house who goes out and he hires workers to labor in his vineyard. Now, as we go through this parable, we will see how things begin to get a little bit more confusing. As I said, it wouldn't have been unordinary for this master of the house to go out early to hire laborers for his vineyard. And he agrees with them to pay a penny here, it says, or a denarius, a day's wage. Think maybe $200 to come and to work in his fields. Okay, nothing strange has happened yet. We move to verse 3. And he goes out the third hour and he sees others standing idle in the marketplace. And you might think, that's strange that he didn't hire enough people earlier in the day, but it's only been a few hours. Maybe there was more harvest to bring in than he had expected. Maybe somebody called in sick. I don't know. But it's not that strange yet. But then we see him come out again at the sixth hour and the ninth hour. Now, if you think about the day here, 6 a.m. is beginning. He goes back out at 9 o'clock. Not too strange. But then he's going out at noon and at 3 o'clock and hiring more and more laborers. And this is where our parable begins to take a strange turn. We begin to think in our minds, what is going on? Why would a master of a house... Keep going back again and again as the day is progressing. Why would he go and continue to hire men to work in his vineyard? It doesn't seem like a very efficient way to run your house. I can only imagine that there might be other landowners seeing this master of the house go and perhaps rolling their eyes. Doesn't this man know how many people to hire? Why does he spend his time going to and fro from the marketplace to his home? Now, unless we thought this man had any credibility left, we see that in the 11th hour, 5 p.m., one hour before the end of the day, he goes out again. He finds others standing idle. Now, these men get a chance to speak, and it ought to give us pause to contemplate why they are pronounced in our passage. He says to them, Why stand ye here all day idle? And they say to him, a very sad confession, because no man hath hired us. Master of the house appears to have pity on them, Sends them into the, into the vineyard. He says the same thing that he said to the, the second and third wave of workers. Just go and whatever's right, 
you will receive. And he doesn't promise them anything. Just that he will do what is right. Now, going out at the 11th hour to hire workers, you can imagine these men hardly got anything done. By the time they left the marketplace, made it to the vineyard, got into the work, found out what was going on right at the end of the day. And if you know anything about most workplaces, eh, the four to five o'clock hours, not the most productive time of the day. But these men who have been standing there idle all day, why do they get a chance to speak? Why is this interaction being highlighted for us? Why are we looking at the first and the last? Well, if you think about a scene where there are day laborers waiting to be hired, you're the master of the house and you come out early in the morning, what do you see? You see a whole variety of people to choose from. Right? You know the guy that worked for you yesterday is there. And you're going to hire him. You see this young, promising man who has the build you'd expect and want. You have the one who was recommended to you by your friend. You get there early to get the best workers, perhaps. And as time goes on, it gets winnowed down to less men. But by the time 5 o'clock comes... These are the men like the young children at recess that weren't even picked for the kickball team. We don't know why. Perhaps they were late showing up. Perhaps they didn't have the right build. They didn't have the tools on their belt to say. They might have not had the reputation of somebody you would want to hire. Your friend might have told you, don't hire that guy. These were the ones who were overlooked, rejected. Nobody had taken notice of them throughout the day. You can only imagine uh, the master of the house coming to them at this late hour in the day and them having no expectation for him to do anything. And yet, he hires them. The day was well over, and yet he hires them and sends them into the vineyard. This is the end of our first scene. It raises for the disciples who are listening, and hopefully it raises for us questions as we read it to think, what is going on? Why would the master of the house do this in this way? But it gets even more puzzling. And when they that came and were hired about the, I'm sorry, uh, beginning in uh, verse 8, I'm sorry. Yes. So when Eve was come, the Lord of the vineyard saith unto his steward, Call the laborers and give them their hire, beginning with the last unto the first. And when they came that were hired about the eleventh hour, they received every man a penny or a denarius. Now, can you imagine what that must have been like for these men who sat in the marketplace all day? All of the hope that they would have had that I'm going to go and I'm going to work and I'm going to provide for myself, perhaps for my family. And as the hours went by, the amount of despair that would have set in slowly over time. And then here they have this little glimmer of hope that they're hired to the last hour. You know, maybe they'll get $20, right? But here, they that were hired last, only working one hour, are given a full day's wage. Now, you have to assume 
based on this passage, that there was some sort of scene that took place. Can you imagine the exuberance that would have taken place? $200 an hour. And we know there's a scene because the people who were hired first, when they show up, they know what has happened. And they suppose that they would have received more. But they likewise received every man a penny. And when they received it, they murmured against the good men of the house. And they make their case, saying, These last have wrought but one hour, and thou hast made them equal unto us, which have borne the burden and heat of the day. Can you not sympathize with the critique of the first workers? I don't know uh, what types of jobs you've had, but it seems the number one rule in American workplaces is you don't talk about how much money you make. This is why. Because when you find out how much Steve makes, how much Joe makes, uh, it doesn't match up with what you think they should make, right? Or it makes you feel like what you make comparatively isn't appropriate. And that's what's happening here. It's, it's the same sensibility we all have. These men have worked for 12 hours and they've now been paid those, the same wage as those who've only worked for one. Interestingly, in verse 12 it says that these last have worked but one hour and thou hast made them equal unto us which have borne the burden and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, Friend, I do thee no wrong. Didst thou not agree with me for a penny? Notice how these men who have been given such a generous gift from the master of the house, a full day's wage, the dignity to go back home and tell their family, their wife, that they've worked the day, they've brought home what they had hoped to do. And those men who came early and were happy to be hired, not many hours earlier, for the appropriate wage, had agreed to it, have now felt like their wage has been diminished, even though it hasn't changed. There's a change in the hearts and minds of these first workers that has taken place, but their circumstance hasn't changed. The master of the house is kind. He calls them friend. He explains to them that he has done nothing wrong. He, they agreed to this, uh, you know, this wage. Can't he be generous to these other men? You look at me with an evil eye because I'm doing good? So the last shall be first and the first last. Now as we look at this parable, it's supposed to instruct us about what the kingdom of God is like. It's highlighting for us first workers, last workers, and a master of a house. And Jesus is telling this to Peter, the man who asked him just a few moments ago, am I going to get paid? I left everything. Is it going to be worth it? You see, the first worker is somebody like Peter. He's thinking in his mind, the first worker is the rich young ruler, this man who 
ought to have everything, including a prominent place in the kingdom of God. But now he finds himself at the front of the line in Jesus' new ministry, right? He's, he's part of this group of men who are giving up everything and following after Christ. And he's concerned that he might end up like this rich young ruler. So Jesus is pointing out people like Peter, the first in the gate. We are the first workers in this parable. Now this might describe you if you grew up in the church, you were baptized, you've never known a day when you did not know the Lord, you've served in all sorts of committees, you've been active in Sunday school and youth group, you've went through leadership training, perhaps you've served as an officer in the church, you're at this place here in a seminary getting education and training. We've put in time. We've borne the heat of the day. The first workers are being instructed here. We are being instructed as those who are already following after Christ, that we will be prone to this same error. That we will come to a point in our life where we will think, is this worth it? Am I, am I going to get rewarded for the time I spend? Am I going to get rewarded for the money I give? Am I going to be rewarded? And you see what's happened with Peter... What's happened with these first workers is that they failed to understand where they began. Remember, these are day laborers. No guarantee of any work. Desperate and needy standing in the marketplace. They just as easily could have been overlooked as the workers who had to wait there all day. And now they have found themselves at the front of the line. They compare themselves to those who have come after and think more highly of themselves. And they begin to feel like they have a right, a claim to something, that they've earned something more. They've forgotten where they've come from. They've forgotten the joy of being hired for a denarius. Instead, they feel like they can negotiate. That now they are somehow part of the master of the house's consideration. That they're not just a hired hand, but instead are in some sort of privileged position. They don't identify themselves with the other workers. They've created for themselves some sort of pecking order out in the vineyard. But ultimately, what Peter's question gets to, what these men are operating in, and what most of us operate in in this life, is that we are rewarded for works. That if we work hard, we will get paid for it. That when we work less, we won't get paid as much. But the kingdom of heaven is not like our kingdom. It doesn't matter what Peter has given up. If you look at the list that Jesus gave him in response to the question, will I be rewarded? What will I receive? 
it is not proportionate to the things that Peter has given up. Indeed, it is true that Peter has left everything. He left the boat. He left his livelihood. He is following after Jesus. But the list of things that Jesus assures him that he will receive is unthinkable. He doesn't deserve those things because of what he's given up. He's received them because Christ called him out of darkness and into light. And here he is reminding him, oh so gently through the words of a parable, what the kingdom of heaven is like. Because Peter is literally one of the first in line. And there will be many more to come. Which gets us to our second character group. We have the, the last workers, right? We, t- we talked about how these men were not ideal candidates to go into the vineyard. Now this might describe you if you came into the church later on in life. You have a life prior to Christ that you might think is scandalous. You don't need anybody to tell you that you don't deserve to get paid. You were just standing there with no hope and all of a sudden you were whisked into the vineyard. And not only were you whisked into the vineyard, at the end of the day, you've received the full dignity full standing, you have been made equal with all those whom you stand by. This gives comfort to those who are lacking assurance, who are overcome with guilt and shame. This shows us that the master of the house, right? God himself in this kingdom doesn't just throw out some sort of pittance to these men. He doesn't just give them some money because, you know, he felt bad for them. No, when the men come into the vineyard, when they are hired into this work, they are made equals. Now, that's really hard for people like Peter. It's really hard for first workers. It might be really hard for you. The sin in our heart always wants to compare us to other people, to think we're doing better than them. Now, look at this scene. Now, they get this pay, right? A full day's wage. And these men, they grumble about it. But can you imagine another scenario that could have taken place? We can certainly, uh, you know, relate to this idea of feeling like, yeah, it'd be nice if I got paid extra as well. But can you imagine a different scenario where you have been there all day, this man comes in and he works for an hour, and when he gets up to the front of the line, he is paid a full day's wage. And instead of looking at yourself and thinking, why didn't I get paid that much? How come I didn't get $200 for the whole day? What if your response was, praise God. What a generous man that we work for. Let's go out and celebrate tonight. You're buying. That's a much different response. Because it's not based on comparing ourselves to others. It's rejoicing in the work of the master of the house.
Now, our third character, and perhaps the most important character of our parable, is the master of the house, the representation of God himself, and how he is at work in the kingdom. And he tells us a lot about the kingdom here. We can start by just looking at the way in which he carries himself. He goes out and he hires workers in the morning. He's active. He goes out again and again and again and again. It seems he's never satisfied with the amount of workers that are there. He knows there are others standing idle. He doesn't want to leave anybody behind, right? But as he's doing this, he is looking inefficient. He is perhaps looking foolish. His reputation is being perhaps tarnished among the other masters of the house. This is part of what the kingdom of heaven is like. This is what he is telling Peter, that there will be more people coming, and more people coming, and more people coming, and more people coming. And as they come, they will be made equals to you. The kingdom of heaven is one in which we go, in which God continues to call in which those who have been passed over are brought in. Where everybody is made an equal because of the benevolent grace of the Master. Beyond that, we see just the great mercy that He shows going out and hiring these men who have been overlooked. We often see those who are you know, in different spheres of life and we kind of have this idea that they're outside of the reach of God. I don't know what you do in your free time. Fortunately, I spend some of it watching videos of people saying crazy things in our culture. Highlights of the most radical ideologies that we see all around us. And it's easy for us to watch those things and think, I'm so glad I'm not that person. The world is so dumb. But what we fail to see is the individuals. What we fail to see, what we fail to keep in mind is that Christ is calling people from every place, every walk of life, whether the most godless pagan person you can imagine or the youngest babe in the church. There is no category here in which the master of the house is not going after. It's the first worker's mindset for us to look at other people and have a sense of judgment and entitlement towards them instead of a heart of mercy and hope. This passage gives us great hope for those who are around us. Because it shows us who our God truly is. The one who is going again and again. He's not done building His kingdom. It doesn't matter how much harvest is in the field. He's just hiring more people to come. As I read this passage over and over and over again... It begins to seem that this master of the house isn't so concerned about the harvest. He doesn't seem so concerned about his money. It seems the thing he is most concerned about 
is the man he's hired. He puts his reputation on the line. He gives money freely out of an abundance of whatever it is that he has. We see the grace, the mercy, the generosity of the master of the house on display. Now, as we look at this passage, we also must be reminded that it is like the kingdom of heaven. It is like this, but it is the kingdom of heaven is so much more than what we see here. You see, the kingdom of heaven is not just that we have a great boss who gives out awesome Christmas bonuses, no matter how much we like that. It's not just a man who kind of looks silly going and hiring people. It's not just a man giving out $200 to people who maybe don't deserve it. But it points us to a far greater truth. This man, as he has given of himself, has put himself out there, has brought in the laborers, has given of his wealth to those, reminds us that we belong to a God who has given everything to bring in his people. If there is anybody who is truly first, the the firstborn of all creation, Jesus Christ himself, the one who actually deserves to get rewarded, the one who truly did all of the good works, he is the one who has made himself scandalously shamed for us. He didn't just walk to a marketplace time and time again looking inefficient. He walked the road to Calvary. He was spat upon and beaten. He gave his own life so that those who were looked over, who didn't deserve to come in, who hadn't earned anything, could be made an equal in his kingdom. See, when we lose sight who God is, when we lose sight of what has been given for our salvation, we just turn on ourselves and start comparing with one another. And it is death to our souls. It is the heart of all the divisions we see in the church. It is why we beat ourselves up with shame and guilt because we compare ourselves to other people we think are better or more godly. It is the way in which we build pride in our own hearts as we think we're better than other people. It is poison, but it is not what the kingdom of heaven is like. This whole talk about giving up everything to follow after Jesus, selling all your possessions and following after him, Peter wondering if giving up everything was worth it. We have to be reminded that the master of the house, God himself, has given up everything. His own son. Humiliating himself, coming in flesh. That he might bring many sons to glory. The kingdom of heaven is like the master of a house who hires laborers for his vineyard. But it is so much more than that. May we resist this urge. May we stop living in God's kingdom thinking it is about works. May we be reminded of what Christ has done for us. And when we see others come in, undeserving people, may we be reminded that we were also undeserving. We stood with them out there in the marketplace. And when they come in, let us rejoice. 
Be glad that they are made an equal. Because we, too, have been made an equal. And that we have not received what we deserve. Because if we receive what we deserve, we wouldn't even be in the marketplace. We would be under the wrath and judgment of God. And instead, let us rejoice. Let us give thanks and praise. Let us have hearts filled with adoration. That God has called us. That He has paid for all of our sins. That He has redeemed us. That He has put us in a place we don't deserve. That this promise to Peter that we will have everlasting life. That everything we have ever suffered or given up, none of it matters. Because we have been given so much more. Because of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have shown mercy and grace to us. That you have called us from various places at various times. That our standing before you is not based in our own works and faithfulness, but that it is rooted in your grace and loving kindness. Father, we are all prone to pride, to doubt, to comparison, and we need your Spirit to continue to work in us that we might behold your glory, that we might live lives of gratitude and thanksgiving, that we would work with hearts full of your praise. Please give us your grace today. Forgive us where we have failed and help us to live a life according to your kingdom. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.